Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year, 1949. And look at me, Ma! I'm on top of the pod! You know how much advertisers pay for this? They call it a pre-roll! It's big! It's huge! Eat your heart out, Casper Mattress! The movie, White Heat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. All time! And when we do, we're going to send them to space. And Amy, I got to tell you, I just bought a book. I haven't even cracked it open yet, but it's the New York Times 1,000 Essential Movies. Oh, wow. And we've been doing this show for about four years, and I want to see how much we have overlap with that, you know, uh, that, that book. Yeah. I haven't cracked open this book at all. I'm curious. I mean, maybe yeah. we should pick a film of random, just sort of flip through, pick a random number and be like, that one. We'll all right, it. I love that. All right, we will do it. I'll bring the book next time because uh, right now it's far away from me and, you know, we can't stop the podcast. Once we start the podcast, mm-hmm. there are no edits here. None. None. Flawless. We are live. Live. The best take. talkers. We've done talk pretty all the time. <laughs> never make a mistake of people's <laughs> names. Never. Yeah. We never have a turn of phrase that's wrong. Amy, never I Never mispronounce you, anything. Never. never. I've never, never gotten one piece of feedback never. about mispronouncing something. <laughs> <laughs> we always roll in our clips live. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you this much, Amy. Training day. Reactions are mixed on training day. People really... Liked our conversation, which I appreciated, but it was a pretty definitive no-go to outer space. And I guess the reason is twofold. One, it's a pretty simple cop movie is what I keep on seeing. And two, people believe there are better Denzel performances out there. And that is one that I think you could actually make an argument for, that this might be one of the best, if not the best, Denzel Washington performances. 
But uh, but I, what did you get for your feedback on this? Yeah, I got about that, which surprised me because I would have guessed that Training Day was one of those beloved ones. You know, that yes. people are like, I love that movie. It's a masterpiece. That's how it's always talked about around me. Yeah, so I, was, I, I always find that actually really heartening when people can separate, I love this movie. I do think this movie is great. It's absolutely not going to space. I totally agree. I think that, you know, some of those things that we were talking about in the episode may pull it back from being a great overall movie. And look, we're looking at performances, we're looking at movies. So I think one of the best parts of the show, not that I have to sell myself on the concept, is that we can kind of appreciate different things, but not everything goes to space. I mean, that's it. We're bouncers at a very exclusive club. And uh, you know what? Sometimes you may be wearing the right shoes, but... We already, you know, we already have people in there with the same hairstyle. I don't know. I don't know. Is that how they kick people out of clubs? Yeah. I mean, one of the only films that I would say in the last couple of months that is like definitively we open up the red velvet rope for you has been Night of the Hunter. That one has been like people being like, yes, absolutely. Night of the Hunter, totally going in. Training day, don't care. Kick it to the curb. And so I'm kind of excited that in this week's episode, we're bringing it back to another classic black and white because the the love of classic black and white on here always makes my cold black and white heart just turn a little bit more color. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited. I mean, I don't even think we need more of an intro than that. Are you ready to, hey, unspool it, lady? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. It's going in. The year is 1949. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a.k.a. NATO, is established protecting Europe from the Soviet Union. The Geneva Convention comes to an agreement on the treatment of prisoners. George Orwell publishes his book, 1984. The first ever Primetime Emmy Award goes to Pantomime Quiz Time for Most Outstanding Television Program. Please bring that back. The hot films of the year are On the Town, Little Women, The Blue Lagoon, not the one in color with Brooke Shields, unless she's really aging wonderfully. And today's film, White Heat. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? And I guarantee you, I won't know it. <laughs> White Heat. It is a gangster story, perhaps the gangster story, directed by the veteran filmmaker Raoul Walsh. Uh, it is written by the crime caper duo Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts and is inspired by a story from Virginia Kellogg, a really great, fascinating female crime fiction writer and former journalist herself. Uh, this movie is famous for a few things. One, it is a glimpse into future policing technology. Two, its status as probably the last great gangster noir of this era. And three, because this film is all about the signature, all-time, most inspirational villain performance, uh, Jimmy Cagney as the gang boss Cody Jarrett, this violent psychopath who is diagnosed with major mental issues, including his intense devotion to his mom, Ma Jarrett, played by Margaret Wykerly. Uh, Virginia Mayo is in here. She's playing Cody's mean, money-grubbing wife who's scheming against him with Big Ed. Big Ed is played by Steve Cochran. You've got John Archer as the detective on his tail and Edmund O'Brien as the detective assigned to pretend he's arrested so that he can be put in jail with Cagney's character, become his friend, and get this guy to confess to the murders he's pretty sure that he did. Um, If you've seen this movie, you know why it's a landmark. And even if you think you haven't yet seen this movie and you're about to watch it, you kind of have seen this movie because it is so influential. Take a listen. You won't get away with the Cody. Cody, huh? You got a good memory for names. Too good. 
How do you like that, boys? A copper. And I was going to split 50-50 with a copper. <laughs> now tell me you're glad to see me. Only say it's more. All I wanted was for you to come back. That's the truth. I love you, Cody. I love you. I look good in a mink coat, honey. Uh-huh. You look good in a shower curtain. It was Big Ed. He told me to do it. You wouldn't kill me in cold blood, would you? Now let you warm up a little. Let him have it. Oh, no. And lose our ace in the hole? He's gonna walk us out of here. Ain't you, copper? White Heat came out on September 3rd, 1949. It was a solid hit. It got solid to great reviews, and it got almost no Oscars except a nomination for the story because at the time people were like, that movie is way too violent, and we do not want to reward a crazy psychopathic performance. But the song on the radio that you know, maybe Paul does know. Maybe he's grooving to it all the time. It is another song that captures a lot of the bigness of this movie. It is a song all about big emotions and having your heart torn in two. It is by Vic Damone, and it is called You're Breaking My Heart. And we'll make a new start, dear. Till then, you're Paul. I think that is like a bop. I like it. I like it. <laughs> the, the, the bigness of that of that song matches the bigness of this movie, which just like from the opening scene is like, ta-da, we are loud music. We're going nuts. I mean, just boom, starts with a clip. by the way, is by Max Steiner, a guy that we have come across a lot. He did the score for King Kong, Casablanca, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a bunch of great Betty Davis films we haven't gotten to. His music really just like, it does not screw around. You know, it's so interesting, Amy. We've been doing this show for like four years now, and I'm constantly surprised how a film from 1949 could be so good. Right. Like in, in, in the sense of like, <laughs> like in the sense that what they're able to do is really impressive. Like this movie or I think of gangster films in a way of being like, ah, oh, you know, again, this the the memification of Jimmy Cagney. Like, ah, yeah, dirty rat. Yeah, dirty rat. Bah, 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 bah. You know, a lot of machine gun fire, like just yeah. simplistic. The great foot in the face, the great foot in the face, yes. the great foot in the face. Yeah. Like simplistic films. I think that's what I'm responding to. Not that movies could be great, but like that you could actually have a real depth drama and violence. That that really is, I, I think, what I'm getting to here, too, is like this movie is incredibly violent. This story is incredibly progressive. It doesn't feel uh, antiquated, I think, in a way, because you can see how so many people have used this as the backdrop for great cops and robbers stories. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of stories behind the making of this film and how they made it so strange and chewy and complex. And part of that is the challenge almost that you're describing, that 
you know, Jimmy Cagney was sick of playing gangsters. He'd been trying not to play gangsters. You know, the last time we've seen him in the show was winning the Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dandy. You know, that mm-hmm. musical that we were very quick to kick off the AFI list. Yeah. But he was, but that movie made him like, after that, he left Warner Brothers. He went on his own. He tried to be his own producer, make his own films. None of them worked. Everybody wanted him to do a gangster picture. He did not want to do another gangster picture. He was like, uh, you know... Movies should be entertaining. They shouldn't be bloodbaths. I'm sick of carrying a gun. I'm sick of beating up women. He looked at the original idea for White Heat and he was like, it's too formulaic. It's just knock down, drag him out again. No imagination, no originality. This guy's just another murderous thug. And he and the writers and everybody was like, well, then let's make this fascinating. Let's, okay, if that's how you feel about gangster pictures, we're going to raise the bar and try to make this a gangster nobody's ever seen. We're going to make somebody who's not just like, you know, a little violent, rough around the edges. You kind of grow to love him. We're going to make a total psychotic who's fascinating and you're going to have to play this guy and people are going to have to see it. I also think that if you look at when this movie comes out, it's post-World War II. And as a country, I think we're starting to acknowledge that there are these psychological factors that could prevent soldiers from coming back into the world or that there are larger psychological issues at play with different people. Like, you know, it's not just like, oh, they're in the nut house or they're, you know, crazy that we started to kind of understand or at least look at it. And even if it was very basic, it was the beginning of this idea that people did things for reasons that, you know, were out of their control to a certain level. You're right. Like, we're still not even at this period where we're talking about PTSD, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and but we are sort of thinking like, why do people seem unhappy? What is happening? And, you know, we're tiptoeing around this idea, like three years before this, we have the movie, you know, The Best Years of Our Lives, which is sort of trying to talk a little bit about like soldiers coming home, mental illness. We loved that movie when we did it in the first season. And you might even remember that Virginia Mayo was in that playing kind of like yeah. a like a nasty wife. I mean, here she is, you know, kind of saying like, ah, money is what matters to me in best years. They'll tell you money isn't everything. Well, maybe it isn't, but boy, how it helps. Do you know that while Fred was away, I was drawing over $500 a month? I mean, from his army pay and the job I had. Now the two of us got to live on what Fred gets from being a drugstore cowboy. Thirty-two fifty a week. But yeah, but no, like to your point, like actual psychology isn't really on screen. It's sort of like bad people do bad things. They get punished for it. You know, people are lured to do bad things. There's sinful women and sinful men. But the idea of, no, what's what's making this person broken is kind of, it, it feels fresh to do it on, to do it in this movie. Well, I think one of the things that really got me. It's a very simple line in the film, and I know there's a lot of iconic scenes in this movie, but the way that they speak about his relationship with his mother, right? White Heat refers to the headaches that Cagney gets, these massive headaches. And we see it in the, maybe like the second or third scene in this movie where he's just blinded by this headache and he can't even function. And his mom is like, don't let them see you like that. You got to stand up. You got to get forward. And, you know, and we know that this character is plagued by these intense headaches. Later on in the film, we learn that the headaches were something that he manufactured. He created these headaches as a child to get his mother's attention. And then because he was doing that, it all of a sudden started to become a real problem, a real headache. You see, uh, there's insanity in the Jarrett's. Some of it rubbed off on Cody. His father died in an institution. I've had a few strange cellmates in my time, but 
This sounds like the jackpot. When he was a kid, he used to fake headaches in order to get his mother's attention away from the rest of the family. It worked. As he grew up, the fancied headaches became real until now they tear him to pieces. Any minute, he's apt to crack open at the seams. There goes our case. So he'll be working against time. Suits me. The quicker the better. Except that Cody is not an easy guy to get close to in a hurry. The only person he's ever cared about or trusted is his mother. No one else has ever made a dent, not even his wife. His mother's been the prop that's held him up. He's got a fierce, psychopathic devotion for her. Even though the like the basis of that is like a very base level of like psychology, like layering that into the film, not just making him a guy who has massive migraines, like to understand that little bit of wanting attention from his mother and then knowing that that's the only way to get it and then becoming the thing that he wants for attention is really a fascinating journey of this character. And I think it that one thing paints him so interestingly. Yeah, he describes the headaches as having, like, he says, like, quote, a red-hot buzzsaw inside my head. And those words are so vivid that you really think, like, oh, that's kind of how Cagney's playing this whole part. Like, he's a guy who's just, like, burning and angry and kind of vibrating. And, like, there's all this violence inside of him. And it's, like, almost like he's externalizing these headaches. And there's a moment where then, you know, Raul Wash, the director, kind of puts you inside the headache. You get to hear the vibe of what it's like to be inside his head as it's splitting apart. I'll take care of baby. I'll take care of him, Cody. I'll take care of him, Cody. I'll take care of him, Cody. And these things all together, they put you, you know, inside of him. It's not like you have empathy for him, but you're being asked to understand how he is suffering. And you're seeing him suffer because when these headaches hurt, he is in actual agony and he is vulnerable in a way that I don't think we see a lot of villains get vulnerable. He's like weak and on a frail and on the floor and he needs he needs love. Like, it's rare to see a villain, this psychopathic, shooting up cars, killing people, making quips about it, also need a hug. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. He wants attention, right? Everything he is doing is to get his mother's attention. And even at the end, you know, when he is on the petroleum towers, fire all around him, he is defeated. You know, he his last words are like, look at me, ma, top of the world. <laughs> yeah, they're again, so famous. Let's play him right here. And I think, you know, out of context, that feels like hubris, 
right? But when you understand the whole movie, it's something deeper. It's like what we talked about in Training Day. Like, you know, King Kong's got nothing on me. When you take that out of context, it loses, it becomes something else, right? Um, and I think that that line of like, made it my top of the world, it's again, a clip retrospective before the Oscars, like, oh, right, gangster movie. But that is actually a sadder line for this character. Like, you know, he he really is constantly looking for this approval, you know, and and, and that's oh, how that's the, the, true. You and know, that to make it is just have everybody watching you as you're dying. Yeah. <laughs> like if that's your, if that's the success he's been climbing for, it's very sad. And, you know, I'm so glad that you brought up Trading Day right up at the top because I realized this is so much why I want to do this film right after Training Day is because this movie and this way of acting and the Cagney the Cagney just gusto is something that I think really heavily influenced that performance. You know, when he's on top of the world and getting shot at here, he keeps like getting shot, climbing to his feet, getting shot, climbing to his feet, exactly like Alonzo at the end of Training Day. And then I remembered, I don't know how well you remember the film Ricochet, if you've even seen it. It's oh, an early Denzel it. movie. Yes, I love it. They give him chlamydia. Yeah. Do you remember what he says in that movie? Yes, uh, yes, let's just yes. Play it. Yeah, I do. Let's play yeah. It. This is a foundational actor model for, for Denzel. That. Yeah. And they're, you know, really similar. Denzel doesn't like to talk about, you know, he doesn't go all like, oh, I'm methody, you know, it's my crazy craft. And like Cagney felt exactly the same way. Cagney's like, you know how you play big crazy scenes? You just do them. You just do the things. Like you, well, you, I you mean, act. Well, it's interesting because I think if you were to read about Cagney, he would describe himself as like, you know, uh, a character actor, right? Didn't really, just didn't have that much, uh, you know, uh, ego about what he did. But I think where he kind of becomes a method actor or where he kind of pushes it is when you read about him on set from other actors' perspectives. They're like, oh my gosh, he was scary in those scenes. He was, he, the way he used his posture was intimidating. Yeah. And I think in this movie, another classic scene, which uh, I had seen but didn't know the context of, is in the prison when he finds out that his mom is dead. Oh, right? let's, he, let's dig into this scene. Yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, first, let's just talk about the setup. Like, mm. You have him like sitting in this cafeteria with like 600 extras, something that Raul Walsh felt for, like fought for. You know, it the- really is surprising. Again, we're talking about this idea of like a 1949 movie, like to see a scope and not like we've talked about these other movies that we've seen, like older films, silent films, where there's a lot of people milling about. But this is a, a set. It's big. Everyone's costumed. You know, it actually holds the record for the most camera setups at this point uh, for one scene. You know, this is like a big deal scene that the studio wanted to put in a chapel. Yeah. And Raul Walsh was like, you think Cagney's character is ever going to go to a chapel? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's got to be in this cafeteria. We got to have 600 people. And Raul Walsh is a guy who you can trust to get this done. Like, he's a director who I think, you know, has kind of been cheated out of being considered like a name to us. You know, you're not like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Raul Walsh. But he's a guy who just like his career crosses 
from the beginning of film, you know, to highlights like this. He knew everybody. He's one of the guys who founded the Academy. Like he's just, he he is the story of film himself. There's a really good documentary on Raul Walsh that was just on the Criterion channel. I don't know if it's still up, but you really understand that he's almost like a zealot who knew everybody and was connected to the whole thing. This is a guy who, you know, was here being the assistant director for D.W. Griffith on Birth of a Nation, you know, which is wow. like handling all of those extras. And also he played John Wilkes Booth in that movie. He also, I mean, Oliver Stone wishes he did some of the stuff that Raul Walsh did. He once went um, in like 1915 to Mexico to shoot a documentary on Pancho Villa that was like kind of a storytelling documentary. It was like the film of Pancho Villa starring actual Pancho Villa filming actual battles with Pancho Villa, having Pancho Villa play himself in scripted scenes, a, a movie that, you know, was destroyed. And I, it's like, I would give my left arm to see what that is, but he was in the middle of battles doing that kind of thing. So Raul Welsh is like 600 extras and Jimmy Cagney flipping out. I could totally do that. I can totally stage that. And, but that flip out scene was not even supposed to be a flip out scene. It was supposed to be this scene where he finds out about his mom, but it wasn't working. And Cagney tells him, follow me, like, trust me, I have, I want to try something. Yeah. I mean, okay, let's talk about the way it builds. Cause like his freak out is so great, but I want to talk about the building first. Mm -hmm. You're sitting at a cafeteria table. People are lip syncing to each other. There's a lot of like lip reading in this, watching people's lips, a lot of silence in between the screaming. And Cagney plays basically a little kid's game of telephone. He sees that there's a guy at the end of the cafeteria table who's new and he knows that he and his mom are so famous among gangsters, he can just be like, ask him how my mom is. And this is just even listening to that whisper get passed all the way down, and then the news that his mom is dead get passed all the way up. Dead. can only imagine how it was scripted because the reveal of like, how does this character take this in? This is the most important piece of information that this character's ever received. And the one thing that we know about this character is that he is good at hiding his emotions, right? Like he, we, like we talked about the headaches, he's never going to show anybody that he's weak, but this has to be such a gut punch that it's going to affect him. And whatever it was, it wasn't working. This is where Cagney tells the director, let me try something. They put the two biggest extras on either side of him so he can use their bodies. Um, and no one knows exactly what he's doing, but 
he uses their bodies to launch his body onto the table. And he does this freak out, emotional breakdown, disintegration, whatever you want to call it, where he is literally unraveling and not only unraveling in front of uh, his friends, but the entire prison. Like that's why the 600 people or, you know, that room needs to be filled because in this moment, he is shown all of his cards. He is weak. He is, he's letting down his guard. He, in this moment, he is showing everyone who he is or that he is troubled. It's like crying in front of someone like in that kind of day and age, but even a million times worse, you know, cause it's, it is such an unconsolable manic episode. I mean, it really is a tremendous performance in that moment. And especially because this character, this is all that this woman means to him. And I think him allowing himself to do that just shows how much it gets to him, how much it gets to like the heart of him. I mean, what I love so much about that scene in particular is just how it builds, how it's not like he hears that she's dead and then starts wailing. You know, it starts quiet and then it goes big. I mean, it, it, Katni once told somebody who asked him about it, he's like, you know, the first agony is private. And if I'd looked up right away and started bellowing, it would have been Stock Company 1912. So he right. needed it to feel psychologically real to him, even though he was always saying, like, I'm not a method guy, I'm not a method guy, I'm not a method guy. But yeah, when I was little, I was in a mental hospital. I visited one and like the screaming guys made a really big impression on me. Not a method guy, not a method guy. But yeah, my dad was an alcoholic and had a lot of raging fits. Maybe there's a bit of it in there. Not, I'm, 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 I'm acting though, I'm acting though. And like, yeah, the extras were like, one, one guy was quoted as saying, I was seated two tables away. He says just two tables away. I'm like, two tables away seems far. But it was so scary that he's like, I was seated just two tables away. And it scared the bejesus out of us. You would swear to God he had gone insane. And, you know, to your point about like the vulnerability he's showing, in a way, I think it's a vulnerability that makes him powerful. Like only a person so certain that he terrifies everybody can be that vulnerable. You know what I mean? It almost right. takes power to be that vulnerable. Like, like Orson Welles calls Cagney, you know, his acting style, he calls him like a displacer of air. Like he shifts huh. the currents around him. And that feels so perfect for this scene. Like he just takes up as much space as he needs and everybody presses to the walls and moves aside and is like, okay. Well, in everything, okay. like in, in love, in rage, you know, he will take every bit of the room with him. And I think the difference is that before this, we saw the gangster life in film as being like, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to be a gangster? Don't they have it all, you know, uh, everything at their disposal? Like it, it glorified life. And I think this is something that you see happen a lot in genres, whether it's something like and I'm sure there's a million other ones. This is just off the top of my head, but like NYPD Blue, what that does for police procedurals on TV. You're like, oh shit, right? That's a, oh, and now I'm seeing something completely different than I've ever seen before. Or even you go to like uh, The Long Goodbye where you see like, you know, Philip Marlowe as Elliot Gould. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, and it's brilliant and smart, but it's a reimagining. And it's like this idea that I think a lot of writers toy with like oh how do we do this differently how do we show this with more depth like not just do the popcorn version now obviously this is a popcorn version but uh it just i love that idea that this psychology is the real way that they're reinventing the gangster genre yeah it really is because cagney was just like essentially i don't want to do this unless you're doing something new 
But then the, the sad irony of it is that Cagney, you know, could only watch that scene, that cafeteria scene one time because he said it was too painful, which meant, you know, as time went by, he forgot, I think, how good he was and how powerful this movie was. And it became reduced in his head to like just some gangster movie I did for the money. And that's how he continued to always talk about it because he couldn't go back and revisit it which is really sad, you know, but, but the film itself, as he was making it, it feels like him and Raul Walsh and the writers, their whole game was what can we get away with? You know, like both Cagney and Raul Walsh claim credit for having Jimmy Cagney climb into his mom's lap, like literally climb into his mom's lap. Like they're both like, I did it. No, it was my idea. But Cagney's quote was like, let's see if we can get away with this. And it's just a dare, you know, the whole way through. What can we do to kind of shock people, to surprise people? And then Cagney, because he's tired of playing gangster villains and feels really typecast, is also interested that this film is at at the same time showing that criminals are kind of dumb and that cops are smarter than them now and cops are catching up and like the old way of crime movies isn't paying off anymore. There's that really early scene where... You know, this uh, detective guy that we have, you know, um, played by John Archer, who, by the way, uh, folding into our earlier villain series, Ann Archer's dad uh, is here playing the detective who's like chasing him around. And he's doing- And by the way, is great. It is great. And he's doing this old fashioned kind of detective work where he's like asking rats to tell him what's up and what's the gossip. And criminals have no gossip for him anymore. It's not working out. But technology is. You get anything out of Willie? Blank. This will cheer you up, Phil. Spectrograph of some dirt from the tunnel. Spectrograph of dust deposits taken from the dead man's clothes. There's no doubt about it. They're identical. It all adds up and places our friend in the morgue right smack at the scene of the crime. Oh, looks like we're in business. From Washington. Have no fingerprint record dead man. That's one I never expected. Dead man, dead end. But prints on cellophane of cigarette package belong Giovanni Cotton Valetti, known member Jared Gang. And yet, like, Cagney doesn't even realize that this technology is there and that it is defeating him. Like, when he finds out that they know, you know, about his early crime, he he thinks it has to still be rats telling people. And it's not true. And he has this little fight about it with Virginia Mayo. I'll tell you what difference it makes. They've got Sookie in a morgue upstate. The team that have tied him in with us on the tunnel job. What? Yeah, all as hot as pistols. I don't know how they did it. Somebody must have tipped them. It's always somebody tipped him. Never the cops are smart. Mm. We had enough food in the house for a week. What'd you have to go out for? You like strawberries, don't you? Well, she just had to get some for her boy. So I just think it's fascinating watching this movie and trying to remember that it also felt like technologically advanced. Like, whoa, kind of like when we go see like a movie now and there's like screens everywhere and well, they do them the, and blah, blah, blah. They do the Minority Report board. I mean, granted, it's a much <laughs> more uh, basic version. It's very much like a chalkboard version, which, by the way, that chase scene in the movie where they're trying to triangulate where the gasoline truck is, uh, is totally on the like it's on the level it works like that is a perfectly done sequence where it actually maps out to LA the streets exist and it also is really amazing to watch that first scene where they are trailing the mom and they have like the ABC like it felt like you were watching something inside like the police department like you learn something yeah. here, like how they're how they're getting ahead of them 
Cagney was like, I want to deter crime with this movie by hoping them show that it doesn't work anymore. Well, it's interesting because he's like a very big, like, I, I, I think that he is for his time, a social justice warrior, right? Like he's somebody Mm -hmm. who is responsible for creating unions, right? The Screen Actors Guild. He was a person who was like, no, we got it. We have to protect our performers. He didn't want to pay taxes imposed by the studios to raise money to fund their political factions, right? And and so much so. He was a fighter. He was a fighter like this. Yeah. You know, and so much so that there was a real life uh, mob contract on his life and they were going to kill him by dropping heavy lighting equipment on him during filming which he then takes and puts in this movie oh my god yeah that's right here (laughs) i didn't know that what yeah so apparently uh from the research that i did george raft is the reason why uh jimmy cagney is still alive because the hit was only revoked after uh raft made a phone call to be like no 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 don't Don't do that. Wait, this makes me think of that famous story where like burglars broke into Dolph Lundgren's house and then they saw a picture of Dolph Lundgren and they were like, we are not stealing from Dolph Lundgren. And they put everything down and left. Oh, my God. I I would want to believe that gangsters would be like, oh, that's our new hit. Cool. We'll go get him. Cagney? Absolutely not. That's my hero. No way. But I guess well, not. You know, I think, well, I think at a certain point when the mob's money is being uh, taken, it's not like, hey, we like this guy as an actor. It's like, no, 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 you're fucking up our our take. So we have to kill you. Uh, which, you know, is also equally kind of fascinating because I also think the reason why this movie gets made or the reason why this script is here is because of Virginia Kellogg. Like you mentioned Ugh. her in the beginning. You know, she's a journalist and, you know, she wrote uh, a bunch of pre-code B-movies and radio plays. Like but, advanced stuff, stuff about like women who are not only doctors, they're doctors getting pregnant out of wedlock in the 30s. She was, oh, she wow. had guts. Well, yeah, she was doing really interesting stuff. Like you said, like, I think she originally wanted to write a um, a biopic of Ma Barker and her four sons. And you can see the similarities in a general sense here because, you know, it led up to a siege and a fatal shootout with the FBI. But yeah, even Ma Barker, like one of her, um, her, her apparently dumb and mean son. I was okay. named Arthur, like he is here. You know, and, and I think that what she did was, while, like, delivering a perfect B-movie, she gave them enough runway to fill in all this other stuff, right? It was sort of like this idea where it was like, okay, this is interesting, but how do we actually mine this? How do we do this differently? And that's where, like, Cagney and the, and, uh, the director sit down and go, like, how do we make this not a B film. Like, how do we just not make him a psychopath? What do we do? And this is where, like, we can say thank you to Humphrey Bogart and uh, Frank Mahue and Edgar G. Robinson, who come in. They're all coming, like, uh, especially Humphrey Bogart and uh, Edward Robinson. They're, they're coming off of Key Largo. And they're like, all right, let's, let's try to figure this out. How do we do this? And they start to, like, pull apart the script, line by line almost, to figure out what you know, what this character could be, what they would like to play. So it's coming at it from a real actor's point of view because Cagney is a producer at this time. So he's like producing a movie that he wants to be in. Yeah, that's so true. And it's like grounded in psychology and also a little bit of reality. Like Virginia Kellogg, to give her just another round of props, like right after this, she does a movie called Caged uh, Mm -hmm. about like women in prison. She does Exactly what Edmund O'Brien does in this movie. She gets herself fake incarcerated. She gets like prisons, four prisons to agree to fake put her in jail and fake that she is an embezzler so that she can study 
women in prisons from the inside, pretend to be an actual incarcerated inmate to learn about what's happening on the inside, which is amazing. Um, Amazing stuff. Like to just like to put her own body on the line like that and then be able to write about it. Like, I don't know if she had the idea before she came up with this character. This character gave her the idea. I think she might have even already been into prison when this happened. But like. Yeah, as as wacky of a of a subplot as it seems, like this guy, you know, willingly locks himself up. Oh no, the writer just did that on her own already. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know, these little ways that they make this movie not cumbersome in exposition, right? If it's a biopic, you have to do a lot of like, well, this happened, then this happened. Here, it's fictionalized. The opening setup is an amazing setup where you understand everything about this gang. You get the sense that there's one guy who wants to take it over. You get the sense that Cagney is going to strike first, ask questions later, but you also get these super smart. You see all the dynamics right at play. And you're in and you're like, it's an engaging opening because you're not leading up to a heist. It's starting at a heist and you feel like you understand the dynamics within the first two minutes. And by the way, that is, according to what I've read a lot because of uh, uh, that actor I mentioned earlier, um, Mahew, um, that's uh, Frank Mahew, um, who just was a friend of Cagney, who was like, I think I have an idea of how to open it. And then you see like, oh, well, of course, when Bogart makes his next movie, right, it's going to be like The Big Sleep or The Have and Have Not and even Dark Passage. All these movies start to feel bigger, darker, deeper, more interesting than the ones they were making before this. Exactly. It's such a fun little click. I mean, like Bogart is also making High Sierra with Raul Walsh, which is just another like incredible film. Like if you love this and haven't seen that, you're going to just dig the heck out of it. But I like these guys kind of pushing each other to go bigger. There's like some real teamwork on this film that I admire. Like oh, Edmund O'Brien would talk about how Jimmy Cagney would step on his feet when they were doing close-up scenes, not so that he would be taller by standing on his feet, but because Edmund O'Brien kept leaning out of frame on accident. And if he stepped on his foot, he would make sure that O'Brien stayed in front of the camera. So it's sort of like, for you, I'm trying to share this camera scene with you. So don't, don't, don't give me the camera scene to myself. And I just find that so generous, you know, that Cagney... It's, I mean, I don't know, typecasting I find so fascinating. Like I love, I love Jimmy Cagney as like a dancer, as a tap dancer. You know, like one of my favorite movies of all time is um, Footlight Parade, the movie that he does with, um, with Busby Berkeley, where he has like this number for Shanghai Lil is just the greatest thing on the planet, is tap dancing. And like, despite loving the range of him, I feel guilty for how much I just love him as the mean gangster that he didn't want to be, that he kept trying to put down. But you know, don't you think, but don't you also think that like only Cagney could get a character to be this emotive, right? Because we do care about him. And that song and dance man, 
idea, like the big eyes, you know, whatever it is, it's like you, like he can allow himself to go there because he doesn't think of himself as a tough guy, right? He doesn't want to be cool. He wants to tell an interesting story. So I almost feel like when you get someone that's willing to go there, like Cody Jarrett is way more impressive because of all of those things that he can bring as a tap dancer, as someone who has a joy, you know, a natural connection to their own joy. Um, You know, I, I think that, you know, I think that you, like when you see, when you see him get hurt, when he finds out that he's been shacking up with a cop, right? Um, yeah, even though he delivers those lines, it's like it's almost like a musical in in his like in his execution of those lines. A cop. How do you like that, boys? A cop, and his name is Fallon. <laughs> and we went for it. I went for it. Treated him like a kid brother. And I was going to split 50-50 with a copper. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking like two of my favorite movies are favorite movies that I love growing up. I don't know if you remember them at all, but there's a movie called Deep Cover with Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum. And I never saw that. No. Oh, it's great. They actually just released a criterion of it. Um, Jeff Goldblum plays like the heavy in that. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne goes undercover and you know you're not used to seeing Jeff Goldblum play like the heavy and he does uh, you know it's he pulls out a performance that I think is one of the I love Jeff Goldblum but that performance is a very unique performance and I think only someone like Jeff Goldblum could kind of give you this unhinged kind of bad guy. I also think, do you remember this other movie that I, I loved? Everyone was talking about like the Pope of Greenwich Village. I always liked State of Grace, which was like a Gary Oldman movie. No, uh, I haven't seen that either. Oh, it's so great. So Gary Oldman and Sean Penn. Sean, yeah, Sean Penn's the cop. Gary Oldman is the bad guy. And it's the same idea where it's like, you know, again, Gary Oldman, I think, has done a lot of different uh, things. But Gary Oldman, I think, is also not afraid to show. Like, I think he plays more good guys and bad guys i don't know what whatever all i'm saying is sometimes when you do a when you have a person who can play both sides of the coin the bad guy becomes more interesting because they become actually somebody that you want to root for that's true i mean face off is that too i'm realizing face off is that as well right it's like like what you get from john travolta being nicholas cage is really interesting and vice versa that is true and you know you know, what is interesting, though, thinking about it this way is like there is such a tendency to think of White Heat as like a solo thing, as just the Nicolas Cage half of that movie. Yeah. But like Edmund O'Brien is holding his own this whole way through because this movie does take that switch halfway through. It's like the first half of the movie is, you know, pretty much like the Jimmy Cagney insanity show. And then Edmund O'Brien enters the film only like half an hour, 35 minutes into the movie and it becomes the like, is this guy going to get discovered? Their friendship, their goofy laughs, like their kind of slow, gradual bonding, you know, the tipping of the fedora and the relationship between them. So even though I feel like we don't think of this as an Edmund O'Brien movie we at should, all because Cagney takes up all the oxygen. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I actually feel like he's our, he's really interesting because he never loses perspective. He doesn't get into the group very quickly, right? He's got to work hard. It doesn't come out like when they trick him with the photo of his wife, like he like... It's not easy the way he gets in, 
And even when they break out of jail. But I love his character because he's walking a really fine line. I love a smart character. And again, this movie does show, uh, like, I mean, I I know I'm referencing every movie ever, but it's Heat. Right. It's De Niro versus Pacino. Oh, like yeah. De Niro's the best at his game. And, you know, the, obviously they're working uh, parallel to each other. And these guys are working together or kind of together because they're undercover. But that idea like you are I respect you for being the best that you are. I'm also the best and I have to take you down and I have to take you down. Like there's no there's no uh, division in that idea. Like they are they respect each other's work. But I, I love him and I love the way he comes in. Like when we meet him, he's like playing with a fishing um like a fishing reel. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I want to go on a vacation. I'm done spending time in prison. Like all this guy does is go to prison. And like, he comes in with such an energy that I love. It's just like, wants to go on vacation. And then he's like picking out the prisoners that he already arrested. Like, so you get all these different things, but he has such a smooth, confident, assured nature that next to Cagney, it's, it's kind of a great uh, two-hander because of that. Yeah, they are like a good balance, even though he's kind of soothing Cagney when Cagney has his like awful headaches. Mm-hmm. You know, he's faking caring about him. Like he, I mean, I guess he, you know, says when he gets assigned, like, I'll be his mom. I'll pretend to be his mom. I'll take care of him. But it, it, I'm sure it's all lies, but there are parts in this movie where I forget that. And it's hard with this character because I can't tell exactly what to believe in about him either. You know, he doesn't get quite enough script where you're like, oh, okay, I understand his actual psychology. We're mainly seeing him in character. But, like, there's that moment where, you know, Cagney catches him trying to beat up one of the guys. And they have that bonding thing where Cagney's like, you're lonesome like me. You're just lonesome. Lonesome. Like me. You? What about? You mean Verna? Yeah. All I ever had was Ma. Now... And, you know, maybe Cagney's right. Like, maybe Cagney sees something in him that we haven't even completely gotten to see. Like, we know that the Edmund O'Brien character isn't married, likes blondes, probably does live a lonely life if he can just get thrown into prison all the time. And in a way, I respect that the movie doesn't go for that sentimental beat of like, oh, it is. And now I feel bad and I am lonesome like you. And maybe you are my friend. It doesn't do any tugging with that. It's not like, oh, maybe he won't turn him in after all. I think it feels pretty clear just from the style. Maybe the fact that, you know, it's a production code movie and like evil will be punished. It doesn't yank the heartstring. Right. Cagney could be right. Cagney could Cagney could nail him better than this movie even says. And, you know, I know we're saying it's not an Edmund O'Brien movie, but he's also no small potatoes, right? Like he gets an Academy Award for Best uh, Supporting Actor, Golden Globes for Best Supporting Actor. You know, he he is somebody who has been recognized. You know, he definitely, you know, is. uh, And again, you know, if you've not seen the movie, you definitely know his face from the work that he's done. Uh, DOA, Hitchhiker, Barefoot Contessa. Like he's been in a bunch of different great things. And he said that the acting advice that Cagney gave him was that Cagney said he had only one rule. He would tap his heart and he would say, play it from here, kid. And that because of that, Cagney could play, this is his quote, he could play a scene 90 ways and never repeat himself. He did this to keep himself fresh. By the way, that, if you listen to the Mark Maron episode with Andrew Garfield, that's method acting. Oh, Andrew no, Garfield. Cagney would be so upset. <laughs> well, no, but I think that like I think that Andrew Garfield's whole point is like people who 
say like I'm method and I treat everybody like shit and like is that's bullshit like method acting is just living in the moment and being real in the moment and making different choices based on what you're getting from your scene partner not being locked into a choice like it's telling the truth it's just connecting with your scene partner and I feel like that that is what is interesting it's like he's not it's not a it's not a uh, scripted locked in performance well then if you want to talk about people who uh Maybe live in the moment with their character too long. We should talk about Big Ed, <laughs> the oh, kind of yeah. like the kind of like a handsome, sleazy bad guy who wants to steal the gang out from underneath him. Uh, and has all those scenes with like Virginia Mayo, you know, where they're like, where they're like talking even about just the nature of is Cody human? It ain't just like waiting for some human being who wants to kill you. Cody ain't human. Fill him full of lead, and he'll still come at you. Plug him and he drops, same as anybody else. The boys didn't think so. Do you know how this actor, Steve Cochran, who I think, you know, makes a strong impression in this movie. Do you, have you heard about his death? No, I did not. All right. So Steve Cochran. I'm bracing myself. He dies pretty young. He dies actually young. He dies at 48. Um, and he dies on his yacht. He has a yacht. He's in Alcapoco. He set sail from Alcapoco. He dies a day or two after he set sail from like a lung infection. Uh that's, you know, kind of weird and sad. But what is weirder is that there were three other people on the yacht with him. Uh, they were all really young women. Uh, the oldest one was 25. The youngest one was 14. Uh, none of the women knew how to sail the yacht. So they just had to stay on the boat with his corpse. Uh, Ooh, the, the boat was yeah. named Rogue, by the way. Uh, and bob around on this boat with Steve Cochran's dead body until the boat drifted ashore in Guatemala, which took 10 days. Oh my lord! I thought you were gonna say like he like died having sex and then you know they dumped him overboard. Oh my, that's so what a <laughs> what an upsetting way. Oh gosh, well not upsetting for him, but man, Ooh. yeah. So so that happened. Very curious. Uh, the story kind of gets dropped. There's not a lot of info after that. I'm very curious. Uh, what what happened on that boat? Or maybe do you I think just don't it was. Uh, do you think it was maybe foul play? <gasps> I think there were definitely some uh, not above the board things happening on that boat. Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, but but to the other side of that love affair, Virginia Mayo, wonderful in this film. I think this is like the first time she was kind of, Virginia Mayo was mean in Best Years of Our Lives, but she's like full on nasty here in a way that she very rarely gets to do. And I think she does a pretty good job, like sticking up to him, being, would you argue that she's in her own way, as sociopathic as Jimmy Cagney is. Yes. When you see her run into his arms, she's desperate, right? So maybe her her desperation is making her act that way. I feel like she doesn't want to be killed, so she's working every angle she can. Maybe maybe I won't call her sociopathic. Oh, oh, but you mean like that scene where she's like begging and you know that she's just like, oh, let's even listen to that, where you can like hear yeah. her lies. Oh, Cody, I'm so glad to see you. I've been praying you come back. I couldn't stand any longer. I was running away. From Big Ed? Yeah. What's the matter? Don't you like him? No, no. Maybe you shouldn't have teamed up with him in the first place, huh? I couldn't help it, Cody. He said if I didn't go away with him, he'd have you killed. <laughs> All I wanted was for you to come back. That's the truth. I love you, Cody. I love you. Let Ma die. No. Yeah. Didn't you raise a finger to help her? And you stood there and watched Big Ed kill her. Huh? I tell you, you got it wrong, Cody. Maybe you even thought it was funny. An old woman taking on a guy like that, huh? No! 
I tried to warn her, but he caught me and beat me. Then when Mark came, he was waiting for her and he... I, I can't tell you. Tell me. He got her in the back. I mean, yeah, like she's willing to do whatever it takes to survive too. They're, I think in a way they're kind of a good, bad couple. They at least are alike in a fundamental way. Yes, I mean, look, I think that no one here is innocent, um, which means that no one is truly a victim. They all know what they've gotten themselves involved with. And it allows you to kind of, like, the comeuppance of everybody. It's not like, oh, she was being held against her will. Like, everyone, people have made mistakes, and now they have to deal with it, right? That's it. That's what you get. Like, they... She knew what she's doing. She's not like somebody, you know, that just plucked off the street, you know, who, oh, I don't know, gangsters. What's gangsters? She wants it. She wants it. She, you see the way she dresses. She likes that lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And what I think is really funny is right after uh, Virginia Mayo and Jimmy Cagney do this movie, they do another movie playing a married couple again. And it could not be any more different. It's called West Point Story. It's a musical. They sing and dance together. Uh, This is them singing and dancing right here. You've been kissed, I know, in the very last row when the love scene is on at the movie show. But wait until tonight and you'll be but right by the kissing rock. It's a lovely spot and believe it or not if you just care a little you'll care a lot so let's dispense with talk and take a little walk by the kissing rock i mean the range of this couple to go from like him kicking her off a chair uh to them being able to tap dance and look really happy and innocent i think she would have done great things if she'd been given more evil roles but they really like to put her in like sweet little blonde girl stuff well i mean yeah i feel like you know, I wonder if she was a little bit before her time, but at, at the same way, I love that Cagney wanted to work with her right again, like right after this. No, it's true. Yeah. And part of me wants to think like, is it because the story was come up was come up with by Virginia Kellogg that the female parts in it are so fun? You know, that there's no right. like stock innocent, that there's like fascinating mom who I still want to talk about a little bit more and fascinating Virginia Mayo. But then I realized that it could be that, but it could also be that, you know, Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts went on to do a bunch of interesting stuff and kind of the crime girl theme, most famously this theme song that I'm just going to play so people can yell it out. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the police academy. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they they wound up writing Charlie's Angels. So... Maybe it's just a a perfect storm of people interested in, like, letting women carry the story in a noir picture, in a a gangster picture. They might carry a noir picture a lot of the time, but almost not that often in a gangster picture. They're getting the grapefruit shoved in their face. Well, you know, and again, I think about, like, interesting characters like this that are a little bit like a con artist. And I'm thinking about that movie Ball of Fire. I think that is, oh my gosh, you know, like... uh, like, Barbara Stanwyck. And Barbara Stanwyck is kind of that outlier because she also, I think even the Lady Eve... She's is she a criminal in that? I, again, my mis—I may be misremembering. She's but it's willing like, to manipulate whatever she needs, and uh, yes, but not like not like the way she is in Double Indemnity. You know, no, yeah. Like, Oof. By the way, I just recently saw that uh, Lost Highway for the first time since I was like a kid, oh, and wow. I didn't realize how much in that movie Patricia Arquette is like modeling 
her outfits off of, and like even her motions off of Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity. I was like, whoa, amazing. Because I saw that movie much later after I saw Yeah, Lost well, Highway. I guess you start to see all these like little, not cheats, but like these where people crib. I mean, like that's every, I feel like everybody's cribbing from different things they love. And, you know, like when you hear about like how Christopher Nolan is like the biggest um, like heat fan, like, you know, it's like every, everybody who's doing this, like everyone who's doing these, um, this job is a fan, right? They want to make yeah. their version of that thing. I think it's very rare. I mean, you're saying maybe that's Denzel Washington, but, uh, but besides them, it's like everyone is there and they, they want to, to have their, I want to do my white heat. I want to do my version of that. You know, I, I think that that's part of this whole business. It's like, okay, well, can I do that. You know, it's so funny that you're mentioning like Christopher Nolan, because watching this, I kept thinking like, man, Sometimes watching Jimmy Cagney in this movie, I think I'm watching like the prequel of Jack Nicholson's Joker. You know, like he explodes and then what happens. Yes, yes. <laughs> I thought similarly. I was like, oh, this is a very like Batman-y kind of villain, like that 1940s kind of character. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's even, even Jimmy Cagney is cackling the last few minutes before he explodes. He's like cackling. And then he's like top of the world. It it feels Batman-y to me. And I was trying to make sure I didn't feel like it just because of another kind of fascinating connection this movie has with the world of, 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 of Batman, which is actually, it ties in a lot of things that we've done in this villain series. What a, This has been such a fun series. Okay. So we were talking about how this character of mom, who is amazing, the, the actress who plays her, uh, Margaret Wegerly, she's like a theater actress, mostly just fantastic. Um, this Ma Barker thing that she's inspired by. First, just a touch of backdrop on Ma Barker. Like, yes, she was a mom. She had four sons. All her sons were illiterate. All her sons spent time in prison. When her sons got out at the same time, they became kidnappers. They uh, murdered her own common-law husband because they thought he was blabbing too much. And then they took Ma Barker with them as they went around these crime sprees. Ma Barker uh, notoriously hated most of their girlfriends, tried to chase their girlfriends away. And then when the FBI found the kids and had a big shootout, uh, Ma Barker dies in the shootout with them. And then there's some kind of back and forth on Ma Barker herself. You know, like J. Edgar Hoover claimed that she was like the mastermind of the whole crime spree. Other people have said, absolutely not. She was just there because she was very close with her sons. Um... And so, and, and J. Edgar Hoover just said that after she died because he wanted to make it okay that the police shot her. Uh, the FBI claimed that she was holding a Tommy gun when she was shot. Other people are like, no, they put it in her hands. They put it near her hands. It's very unclear if Ma Barker was or was not a criminal mastermind um, or if they just were trying to find ways to blame the police for shooting a mother. But what is clear is that Ma Barker is like the subject of fascination. She was in a Roger Corman movie uh, that came out like a couple of decades later, starring our beloved Shelley Winters. It is a movie that is called Bloody Mama. You have to just listen to this little snippet of okay. it. Okay. This is Ma Barker and her boys. They do a lot of different things. They love people, all kinds of people, and they have a mother who understands. All right, now everybody reach for the ninth down of the Lord. And by the way, while we're on this Shelley Winters kick, Shelley Winters did another Ma Barker riff that ties everything together. Uh, she plays a character called, baby, this is familiar, Ma Parker. Huh. Uh, and she is a Batman villain 
Uh, wow. she, she shows Everything. up in a couple episodes. She shows up right when she first shows up. You even see her do a riff on the old grapefruit gag. So, you know, that she is thinking of Jimmy Cagney and like, and like the, the Cagney gangster movies. And, and yeah, this is Shelly Winters just having a blast raging as Ma Parker. Look, Batman and Robin have captured her. Shoot this old gray hand. Why, she looks like my own mother. I never meant to harm anybody. I'm just a poor mother trying to get along. <laughs> Take that, you sentimental fools. Holy hairdo. She's got a smoke bomb. <laughs> I gotta say, it's really nice to see her have fun, man. We've seen her get murdered so many times on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay. Okay. If you could handle one more, one more reference of people who yeah. are, who clearly love uh, this movie, can I give you one more for just a person who's very near and dear to my heart? Yeah. This is a lesser known cut from the album True Blue, but Madonna has a whole ass song called White Heat, where she plays a sample from this movie. A cop. How do you like that, boys? A cop. <laughs> and we went for it. I went for it. Treated him like a kid brother. And I was going to split 50-50 with a cop. <laughs> Maybe they're waiting to pin a medal on it. Come on, get up. Get your hands up. Yeah, that's it. A nice gold medal for the cop. Only maybe he's going to get it sooner than he thinks. So wait, he... Man... This movie, uh, this movie, I feel like is one of those just seedlings whose like vines and tendrils wound up everywhere from Madonna films to modern films. Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, the most eye-opening thing was I never thought Jimmy Cagney gangster movies were this kind of rich and full. Like I like again, it always has been relegated to the the clips and the scenes like, oh, well, that was before they actually kind of figured out how to do it. But to know that he's a contemporary of Humphrey Bogart, who's also doing interesting things. I mean, Key Largo, coming off of Key Largo and then going into this is even interesting. Like, you know, Treasure of Sierra Madre, which you talked about on the show, like they were trying to push forward the form. And I think they had a little bit of control at points. And sometimes, you know, if everybody agreed on something, they could actually move it forward and try to do something really Pushing the boundaries, but staying within the limits, right? I mean, we're after the code at this point, but we also are still wrestling with, like, what are people wanting to go see in the theater? Like, what will they... The code's beginning to crumble. Okay, yeah. You've seen holes, but it's still, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I think it's, like, it is interesting to see that, you know, this movement is as much actor-driven as it is, you know, director-driven. It's really this pairing. We talked about it in Night of the Hunter, too. It's like, all right, let's not just do the same old shit. Like, we'll take this script and we'll make it better. And I think that that's obviously what is still going on. It always is going on. But I love the idea that they were bored of the type of movies that they were churning out, right? Like, I think Jimmy Cagney in his biography is like, yeah, I was one of those actors where I just do six movies a year. And if you got a good one, you were excited about it. And if not, you know, it was, it was a, a real, it wasn't like there was a lot of care and time. It was like, next, next, next. You just kept on moving through it. You know, right now it's a lot more precious. So I think the idea that they were that they were aware enough, tired of what they were doing and aware enough to go like, how do we do this better is really interesting to me. It's true. And actually then to tie in Lawton, 
Oh, since we can. One thing that this film has in common with Charles Lawton, who directed uh, Night of the Hunter, is that Steve Martin, who loves classic cinema, uh, used clips of both of them in his movie Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Like he has a whole scene where he's pretending to be Jimmy Cagney's mom and try to like talk him out of, you know, a a cell that he's in on a ship. And he has a whole scene with Charles Lawton, too, where he just, I got to play it just so we can hear again. The beautiful richness of Charles Lawton's voice, the man who should have made another movie. Who am I? You could be a guy who collects $10,000 just to leave this stinking town. I could, could I? You know who I could be? Hunchback of Notre Dame? I could be the guy who hands you them $10,000. You know, Virginia Mayo has said that the one thing that really stuck in her craw was that Jimmy Cagney didn't even get nominated for an Oscar for this movie because, you know, they just didn't give movies to gangsters was her theory and that this movie was just too violent, too psychopathic. I guess it'd be the equivalent today of like, you know, the Oscars nominating, I don't know, a porn film or a snuff film. Like that's sort of how she felt like people reacted to it at the time. Even the people who liked the film reacted to it like it was that violent. You know, it had so much death, so much murder and, you know, no repentance. Jimmy Cagney is here like shooting unarmed men in trunks and making jokes about it. How you doing, Parker? Stuffy in here. I need some air. Oh, stuffy, huh? I'll give it a layer. So she was like, yeah, they didn't nominate him for an Oscar because of that. And I I don't know exactly how true that is, but it is true that when you go back and look at the reviews, the ones that liked it are even freaking out that this movie is like way too violent and is dangerously violent. You know, Bosley Crowther of The New York Times, he writes a really positive review. Uh, you know, even though, and he warns, you know, about the violence in it, he's like, let us soberly warn that White Heat is also a cruelly vicious film and that its impact upon the emotions, on the emotions of the unstable or impressionable is incalculable. Uh, and then after writing that review, he goes, he waits a week, thinks about it more. And he's like, no, 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 let me write about it again. And he has to make it clear in his second review that no, this movie has unhealthy stimulations and it spreads dangerously volatile moral notions. And another critic, Robert Ellis of the California Eagle, he also doubled down at the time. He said, how violent and sadistic can movies get? This picture is more brutal and raw than any since the Warner cycle of gang films in the 1930s. What a sad story that Cagney, a man of intelligence and taste, could not succeed making pictures of artistry and had to come back to Warner's and make this tripe. Mm. I'll bet he is not a very happy man. Well, I guess you could see, I mean, that's the story that you would tell if you didn't see the movie, right? Because what you said was he got into this position where he was forced back into Warner Brothers. He was forced back into doing a gangster movie. But that's telling the story of the defeated actor where it seems like Cagney comes into this and goes, if you're going to make me do this, I'm going to do it on my terms. Let's do it like this. And then makes this movie. Exactly. I think that is true. I think that is true. Man, the eternal battle of typecasting. Uh, I, you know, I, I believe me, I think that anyone who does this understands that implicitly. But I think that when you have people who pull you out of it or trust you to do something different, like, you know, there wasn't this director was like, I want to make this differently, too. Like, it could have been a director who's like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to I don't I want to keep it like this. I want to, you know, like there's everything's got to come in to play. Everything's got to come together a little bit to make it work. <laughs> Are you saying that Cagney lived Al Pacino in Godfather 3 before he even you know, <laughs> lived Godfather just when I thought I was out? That's it. That is it. And you know what? <laughs> Talk about a great villain or hero. I mean, that's really one right there. Um, 
But you've said, you know, and we've we've talked about it, besides Oscars, this movie is relatively well-reviewed and it is a seminal film. So I guess now the question is, is it worthy for space in the sense that, you know, this is a, a, a one of those rare films that I think sets the baseline for what we see for decades and we're still seeing, but has other films trumped it? You know, in your opinion, the like, because I always get it like a movie like this, it's a very specific, a genre specific thing. How many gangster movies are we going to have? How many cop, yeah. how many, you know, villain gangster movies can we have? You know, what do you just think? Like, you know, like, I'm not saying you have to decide whether or not you want to send to space right the second, but like, do you feel like this is worthy of being elevated above maybe something like, um, I deep cover, uh, but you know, I, or something else, you know, that I can't think <laughs> I of. Mean, like, from it. I did argue to strip Goodfellas off our list. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, I do feel like there's a wearing amount of gangster pictures, particularly like post Godfather era. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the question is what Jimmy Cagney do we have on this list? And the truth is we don't have one yet. Cause we took Yankee doodle off. This is also a strong contender for that. Right. Um, so it's tough. It's tough. Like, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a contender. I mean, Time Magazine listed as one of their top 100 films of all time. So there's some precedent. I would say it also feels like a contender to me as well. And I was surprised to feel that way. Um, but it's tricky because it also, I mean, it. you know, I think where this movie really succeeds is they didn't make it overly complex, right? They didn't use the terms that make it feel dated. Like you could watch this and it feels very real. It feels very, you can, like, like you said, the technology while antiquated also feels uh, like at the top of its time. Like there's, there's a lot of things in this that make this movie timeless. And I think that that's one of the things that is in its favor as far as like, does it go to space? Because also the performance here is something from Cagney. We don't, we got to put Cagney up there. You feel like you got to get him in there. Um, and this might be the one, this might be the one, and it may be more for the performance than it is for the movie, but the movie is really good too. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, and one other argument, we did cut Psycho off the list because we were trying to cut Mm -hmm. down on the Hitchcocks. Um, but you know, if we lose Norman Bates's mom and that dynamic, we have it surely here. (laughs) Well, I was actually thinking about, about Psycho because Psycho is another movie that, you know, you get to this this point where at the end they go, well, let me tell you what he's going through. This is what he felt like. You know, dealing with something interestingly complex, you know, psychologically. Um, but I also feel like that one over overdoes it a little bit, where this one is a little bit... Um, yeah. Not sneakier, but just a little bit, not, not you know, doesn't spell everything out for you. It's true. It's true. You could say that a lot of the psychological groundwork that people kind of might credit Psycho for is here, and it's here, you know, over a decade earlier. Well, you know, I think, Amy, in talking about this today, talking about cops and robbers, and I think our villain series has been really interesting because a villain is very rarely positioned on screen without someone trying to take them down. And you get these great villain performances with a great uh you know, a great hero performance. But truly, like you mentioned earlier, you know, in this movie, the cop here, played magnificently, is not really the star of the show. Is there ever a movie that's equally weighted where we see a, a, you know, a gangster and a cop on the same footing? And we talked about it (laughs) uh, a few times here today. And I think it's a perfect example of a movie that would be great to chat about 
for uh, our series, and that is Heat. Uh, I just got the Heat 2 book written by Michael Mann and Meg Gardner, and um, I'm in the middle of reading that right now. And um, I watched it before I read the book, so I wanted to make sure that I was up to date so I could enjoy the book. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie because it's a movie that I really have grown to appreciate a lot more as I've gotten older. And uh, and there's been so much talk about it lately. I think it's going to have a, a good minefield of fun new information out there. There was a great uh, retrospective they just did in New York. So I'm excited to talk about Heat. Take a listen to the trailer. You want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. In the city of Los Angeles. Recognize the M.O.? M.O. is that they're good. If you think these guys are scoring once and passing through, I doubt it. A relentless police detective is on the trail what do we got? of a master thief. You're fugitive number one with a bullet. It's double the risk here. You're wrong. It's four times the risk, and I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. Clear! And his reckless partner. The bank is worth the risk. You should take it down. I want full surveillance. 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us. Bam, bye-bye. They get more daring with every score. What's the estimate? 12.2 million. You're up. But one cop. He's here. I can feel it. Is closing in. Whatever score they're going to take next, they're going to have the surprise of a lifetime. Now, for the first time, Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Academy Award winner Robert De Niro collide. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I'll tell you, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. I will not hesitate for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer in a Michael Mann film heat all right he can be found anywhere that you stream your films or go to hoopla which is a public library run source where you can actually download movies and books and comics everything onto your tablet or phone it's amazing hoopla is amazing support your local public libraries uh, a big thank you to uh our producers uh josh richmond Devin bryant molly reynolds and of course our amazing engineer ryan connor uh we have a great staff here and we also have some great merch you can check out our merch at t public just go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled uh amy anything else you want to say uh, here's a random thing. I just saw Jaws in 3D for the first time in a theater. Uh, they're try- they're 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 getting ready to re-release it as a 3D movie, and wow! I realized I'd never seen that movie big, and it made me I, think about all the other movies I love that I've never seen big, and how much more I noticed in the frame. And it was a really fascinating. Exercise. I just bought my ticket for it <gasps> last night. It's playing uh-uh. at the IMAX, and um, I'm so excited. I didn't know it was in 3D. Oh yeah. 
3D. Oh, 3D. wow. Well, you, you know, really like, feel the water splashing in your face. That debate that you and I have had uh, about Jaws and Jurassic Park is something that I think about a lot. And so I'm excited to go back and watch Jaws in 3D in IMAX. Uh, but uh, it's a limited time. They, I think um, if you, uh, maybe a, about a week ago, they had um, E.T. out in the theaters. They're doing a little Spielberg, uh, you know, end of summer renaissance. Oh, the man who defined summer, getting celebrated at the end of it. Let us all raise our glasses of Arnold Palmer. (laughs) All right, well, we'll (laughs) see you next week for Heat. And bam, just like that, the episode's over.